Hello, my friends. I have a great episode for you today, but before we get to that, I have a quick correction to my last episode on the OIG and neuromonitoring. When I talked about Stark Law, I questioned why the OIG didn't express an opinion on it. It turns out the OIG doesn't enforce Stark. That responsibility rests with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. CMS also has an advisory opinion process, but opinions are issued very rarely compared to the OIG, which issued 22 opinions last year and five so far this year. So I think it's safe to say that CMS won't be commenting on surgeon deals and neuromonitoring and the Stark Law implications. Thanks to one of my listeners for pointing that out. Hey, did you know that there's a new neuromonitoring credential coming out? I think it's like an advanced CNIM that focuses on certification and complex spine. Word has it that Abret is rolling out the new credential later this year. In today's episode, I'm speaking to the folks who developed the exam so we can get your questions answered. I'm Rich Vogel, and this is Stimulating Stuff. Let's go! Welcome back to the Stimulating Stuff Podcast. I'm Rich Vogel, and my guests today are Marty Lau and Lindsay Akers. They're <laughs> members of the ABREC committee that worked to develop a new micro-credential for neuromonitoring and complex spine, and I'm going to absolutely pepper them with questions. Just kidding. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Marty Lau and Lindsay Akers. Hi. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So I was at the asset meeting in Orlando last month, and I saw Stephanie Krause, who's a member of the board of directors of Abret, give a talk on this new neuromonitoring micro-credential in complex spine. I had heard of this before, maybe a couple of years ago, but I was really intrigued by the discussion between Stephanie and the audience members at Asset. To me, this seemed like a great opportunity to use this podcast to help the larger neuromonitoring community learn about this new credential and have some of their common questions answered. So I want to get to all of that, but let's just start with a little bit of background Marty, for people who don't know you, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your background in neurodiagnostics? Sure. Yeah, I um, got into the field in 2003, um, so I have 20 years experience in neurodiagnostics. Um, I'm registered in EEG, Evoke Potentials, um, CNM and CLTM. Um, I have been involved in education in the field, um, a lot of presentations, um, um, we just recently authored a research paper, um, Lindsay and I did. Um, so we've um, done a lot of complex spine procedures um, and really you know, have enjoyed intraoperative monitoring. Okay, thanks, Marty. And Lindsay, what's your story? Um, I have been in the field, not quite as long as Marty, but I've been in the field um, since 2012, so I've got 11 years of experience. Um, I'm strictly CNM, so that's my specialty. Um, I don't quite have all the um, uh, breadth, the wide breadth of uh, credentials that Marty has. But um, yeah, we just recently uh, authored a paper together on uh, dorsal root uh, ganglion stimulator placements, monitoring dermatomal SSCPs for it. Um, I also had a, a poster at ASSET as well this year um, about a uh, an alert that we caught during a dorsal root ganglion stimulator placement um, from a dermatomal SSCP. Um, so it's been very interesting, but uh, 
Um, we, uh, as a team, we do a lot of research together. We have, um, we are trying to explore a lot of new avenues and a lot of other uh, new modalities that, you know, other people have brought to the table as well. So. Oh, that's great. And I think I might have seen that poster at Asset. I wish I had known uh, back then mm -hmm. that we're going to be doing this interview now, but yeah. it's great. Um, so I want to just kind of kick things off by stepping back a little bit with just some very basic questions about Abret for any listeners who aren't really super familiar with the various boards and societies. So super basic. What do the letters A-B-R-E-T stand for? You want to take it, Marty, or me? Uh, you go ahead. Okay. Um, so ABRED is just the American Board of Registered Electro-Neurodiagnostic Technologists. They're the, the overseeing board that actually does all of our credentialing um, in the field, uh, and that includes CNIM. And I think a lot of people, you've probably seen this before, but a lot of people confuse ABRED with ASSET. What's the difference? Uh, well, as I said, Abret tends to be the one who actually is doing all the credentialing. Asset tends to be a lot more education focused for the electrodiagnostics, uh, the electrodiagnostic technologists in the field. So while they don't actually do the credentialing, they I, Asset I think is an extremely valuable resource for anyone pursuing their credentials um, or even who have their credentials and want to maintain their continuing education. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And do, do you happen to know, uh, yeah, I know you're not on the board, so I may ask you some questions you don't know the answer to, but do you know if there's a formal relationship between those two organizations or are they just one's a society and one is a board? I'm not totally aware of there being a connection. Um, Marty, are you, I don't think the two are interconnected. No, not interconnected. I don't believe yeah. I think that, I mean, I think okay. they do work together for yeah. our field, but and so you mentioned that Abret's role is more credentialing certification, and that that seems to be the role of Abret in the neurodiagnostic community. Is is Abret's reach worldwide? That's a great question. I don't like, are there, believe. Are there synonyms from overseas? No, I mean, unless they're I would think naturalized citizens, uh, considering it's the American board, but. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious because um, I know other countries don't have any way, uh, not every country, but a lot of other countries don't have a way to demonstrate certification. So I was just curious if people come to, to take some of these uh, exams from Abret. Yeah. So regarding your relationship with Abret, if I have this right, you're not on the Abret board of directors, but you do serve on the committee that developed this new micro-credential. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And how are these committees populated? So in other words, if somebody wanted to volunteer to help Abret on a committee, is, is it that easy? Uh, and, and how would they go about doing that? So for Marty and I, um, we were nominated uh, by individuals who actually were already on the committee. So we did come in after um, the decision, I guess, to, to form the committee was made, but we were nominated by board members. Um, I believe G, uh, I believe it was G that noticed, uh, nominated the both of us. Okay, so it's not so much that you just go on the Abret website and email somebody and say, hey, I want to volunteer. It's more like you kind of have to be selected and brought into the fold that way. 
So, yeah. No, that, yeah. I mean, that being said, anyway. I, I can't imagine that, you know, if someone emailed or, or got in touch with the, you know, an Abbott yeah. executive was like, hey, I'm really passionate. I really want to help out. Is there a way I could become involved? I, I see no reason why they wouldn't be able to yeah. at least, you know, give that person some information. So. Yeah, I think if you express interest on helping, you know, volunteer with Albert, I think there's there's a place for everyone. Yeah. I would imagine so. I mean, it seems to me that every volunteer society, and I know this from both Asset and ASNM uh, and the ABM, that there's always a shortage of volunteers who want to work literally as volunteers. Yeah. Uh, like they just have this passion to contribute to the profession and mm-hmm. don't necessarily need to be paid for it. It's just they kind of want to elevate their careers in that way. Well, congratulations to the two of you for doing that. Thank you. So Thank you. let's talk about this committee. Does the committee develop the questions that are on the test? We actually had a group of item writers that submitted questions to the committees. So, and these item writers were other people that were nominated to write the the items for the for the test. And then, the committee's job is we go through the items one by one, very diligently, you know, very thoroughly to um, see if they meet the standards that we have for these these exams. Oh, okay. And, and the- the item writers, too, that were nominated, these are people that we as in, members of the committee knew were extremely knowledgeable, who we knew had experience in complex spine and with these modalities. Um, these are people that we we trusted to be extremely knowledgeable and to have this knowledge base to provide these questions for us. So, Oh, that's very helpful. Uh, that actually answers my next question. I was going to ask, how do you determine if, if someone is, you know, is qualified to develop questions, but sounds like you kind of put your minds together and find the right people, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So just to set the stage for this new micro-credential, just have a couple questions about the CNIM. So are you in a position to comment, because um, this is going back years now, on why the CNIM was originally developed? That's a bit before my time. Yeah, <laughs> before my time as well. Yeah. Well, I'll have to have uh, some of the uh, some of the earlier board members come on at some point and talk about that. Do you have any idea, just out of curiosity, because this is a common question that comes up, how many active CNIMs there are in the United States? Active CNIMs. Um, I know. I mean, I have a, a guesstimate as far as the total. I know it's. I think. I believe like in the 5,000s now is the actual total number of maintained credentials as far as active, though. I'm not entirely sure. Um, Marty, you have any idea? I think that's probably a good good guess. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're in the 5,000s now. But, um, you know, when you go through the numbers on the Abret website, there's a lot of people that, you know, they expire. People leave the field. They, you know, pursue other careers. uh, And that may even mean making a jump from neuromonitoring to the EEG world and they decide to pursue that credential and drop the other one. So there's lots of reasons why that might happen. So yeah. it's a long standing question that uh, everybody <laughs> brings up. So I was curious if you knew the answer. Okay. So this is all setting the stage for this new micro credential. Mm-hmm. What does the CNIM certify somebody to do? My perspective to me, the CNIM is the certification that you are 
um, allowed to act independently as uh, an interoperative neuromonitoring technologist without the assistance of a trainer, however, with obviously, you know, physician oversight. But this is the credential that basically says, yes, you have your basic knowledge base, you are good to go and do your procedures as they are without necessarily the assistance of a trainer. Okay. And in terms of differentiating between what we would call certification and maybe competency, does the CNIM attest to competency? And let me ask this in an expanded way. If somebody is in neuromonitoring for a year and they take the CNIM, are they competent at that point to monitor all surgeries? Like, can they go into a motor mapping case or a fourth ventricle mapping case? Or is the certification more speaking to the fact that they are certified in the basics and the competency is left up to wherever that individual is working to ensure that they get the continuing education that's necessary to demonstrate more advanced competencies? I personally am of the opinion that the the role of the CNM is to demonstrate basic competency. When you start getting into things like motor mapping cases or, you know, dorsal column mapping, uh, you're starting to get into a level of complexity that I think the, the CNM may touch on, but maybe doesn't necessarily fully account for. And at that point, where we are in the field right now, I feel like we then are kind of how you phrased it, left to let that complex competency be determined by wherever the you know technologist is working whomever they're training under that's my perspective on it uh, i don't know if marty's is similar or maybe yeah. she has a different thought but i mean i agree and i think that that's one reason why this new credential came about is because there's so much you know variety in our field in the procedures that we monitor and there's a big difference between you know, doing a simple spine case at a surgery center versus doing a complex, you know, spine case at a level one trauma center. So yeah, that's the whole reason why I think the credential is being developed. Yeah. And big difference yeah, okay. between say a one level ACDF and, you know, an intramedullary spinal cord tumor, you know, requiring a dorsal myelotomy, you know? Yeah. Understood. So really this, and, and I've heard people from, different societies and different boards, including ABRET, say that the CNIM is a testament to competency of basic skills, and it's really up to the individual to elevate their career beyond that. And, and ABRET's working on these micro-credentials, but w which will help to certify them in, at least at, at this point, in complex spine but it's really up to that person to pursue education, professional development, and expand their knowledge base in order to become more competent. And in some cases, that means they get on the job training or they go to ASSET or ASNM or ACNS and they use that continuing education to drive that knowledge base or some combination of those things. So let's talk about this new micro-credential in neuromonitoring. We've mentioned it a couple of times, but what is the new credential? What are the letters? What do they stand for? So it's it's CNMCS. That is the, the I guess, the official acronym, which is just, you know, normal CNM plus an addition of complex spine. Um, so this is just a specialization micro-credential 
that you are stacking onto your semen to show that you have advanced competencies in advanced complex spine procedures and modalities. Why was it developed? What was the goal in creating this? And we touched on this a little bit, but just to kind of keep the flow and maybe provide a little bit more context. What, what was what was the goal? Marty, I'll let you take it. Developed to you know recognize and identify those CNMs who are doing the advanced procedures. So you know employers can recognize who can who can perform that type of monitoring for more complex procedures, um, and just you know, hopefully like I said employers will recognize that and maybe you know compensate for that advanced credential, um, but definitely. You know, to identify those who can perform those procedures. Yeah. And I think, too, it, it's going to serve to be very helpful for, say, um, I think instilling confidence in, you know, the, the providers that are seeking these services. You know, if you have a surgeon who is going to be doing some, an extremely complicated case, I think it would say a lot to know, for them at least, that the, you know, technologist who's going to be in their room taking care of their patient is not only well-versed in the procedure, they're well-versed in advanced modalities, and they've actually been tested on it and verified that, yes, this is the person who knows really what they're talking about in your procedure. So I think it's going to help instill some confidence, too, and just advance patient care. Yeah, those are, um, well, for both of you, great points. And uh, a couple of those ones I want to come back to and some questions later on. Just in terms of developing the concept for creating this new credential did abret work in isolation so in other words did someone at abret say you know what we really need a more advanced credential for the neuromonitoring technologist or was there input that came from outside of abret maybe from either individuals or societies like asset asnm acns that said hey we need this, would you please work on creating it? Or was it a combination? I can't speak specifically to like the specific creation of it, just since, you know, I was nominated to the committee after they had kind of already decided they wanted to pursue it. But so I don't know totally if it was completely, you know, thought of in isolation, but I do know Abbott made a point to reach out to the major player companies uh, that are performing neuromonitoring, as well as the societies, sent out a very, very broad survey just to get input from all the people in the field to see what their opinions were on the credential in general. And Marty, you may remember, but um, you know, it, it came back overwhelmingly pretty positive um, in that it seemed like something employers would want, um, CNM techs would want, um, and that maybe even hospitals would want. So. Hmm, interesting. Okay. So then the concept was developed by one means or another, and then you got input from, as you just said, variety of external sources. In terms of developing the content for the exam, was there any form of formal or informal collaboration with societies like ASSET, ACNS, ASNM? We did use, um, we did kind of informally, you know, talk with ACNS or not talk with, but utilize a lot of the ACNS content to help develop it. I'm not, I can't really speak though, if there was a formal or informal, you know, discussion that was had between them. Okay. So, and I guess the nature of that question was, 
you know, did you reach out to like asset, for example, and say, we want one of your board representatives to be on this committee to represent asset. It was more like the board of Abrec got together and said, Hey, we know this group of really knowledgeable people that we'd like to invite together to create the exam. And that's more how it worked. It sounds like. Yeah. yeah. I can't really say for sure. Oh, yeah, I can't speak on that because we're not actually on the board of Abra. Right. So, yeah, right. you know, and on this committee, I can't speak to that. Yeah, unfortunately, we just aren't really sure. Oh, that's okay. So let's talk about the CNMCS exam. You mentioned complex spine procedures. Can you tell the listeners what types of procedures or surgeries fall into the bucket of complex spine in terms of what would be covered on the exam? Um, so we're talking about um, lateral cases, tethered cords, dorsal rhizotomies, um, scoliosis cases with um, osteotomies, um, tumors, um, like Lindsay mentioned earlier with dorsal column mapping, um, all of those types of procedures. As far as, you know, other, you know, modalities too, we're looking at things like um, D waves, you know, actual dorsal column mapping, like she said, um, nerve action potentials, um, direct nerve evoke potentials, um, any, anything that, any modality that would be uh, considered more advanced than say the basic like SSCP, MEP, EMG for purposes of monitoring a, com a complex spine case. What about things like pudendal SSEPs or various reflexes? Would would they be modalities that would likely be included on the exam? Most definitely. Yes, yes. could be included on the exam. Mm -hmm. So one of the challenges is I'm sure you're intimately aware of in an exam like this, in, in creating an exam like this, is the limited amount of formal modality specific guidance that is offered by societies, the professional societies. So certainly there are great guidelines on SSEPs and motors and EMG, mm -hmm. but the advanced modalities aren't really covered by these society guidelines in the same depth. They're sort of included in these other ones. And the literature tends to be somewhat variable because any given paper will generally represent the methods and techniques that are used by individual authors within their institution. So what types of resources did you rely upon? I realize that you crowdsourced the questioning, but in terms of vetting the questions, what types of resource did you rely upon to vet the content of the CNMCS exam? So uh, really a big one that we use were the major player textbooks. So, you know, the big name players, you know, Mark Neuer, um, some of the more um, notable names in the field. We have an entire library just for uh, the complex spine credential that, you know, the item writers were able to utilize and that we are able to utilize not only like, because when we go through every question that's sent to us, we're analyzing it from the stem of the question the answers, the wrong answers, the right answer. Um, and then as well, we're verifying the source and we're also verifying that that source is validated by what the, I, I wanna say established knowledge in the field is. So based on, you know, the most up-to-date textbook. 
information about those modalities. Marty, would you have anything, um, anything thoughts there? Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Sure. And you mentioned correct and incorrect answers. Uh, you know, I've, I've been in this position before on a board and I think a lot of people don't know what goes into actually developing a test that is administered by PTC, for example, and yeah. all of the work and analytics that go on behind the scenes. I also know that you yeah. can't talk about it because yeah. uh, they, you know, make sure that you have confidentiality clauses so you don't. Yeah taint the exam. So uh, to the listeners, we're not going to talk about those things because we really can't. It's not fair. And I'm not going to ask those questions, but I am going to press you on this a little bit. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned textbooks and as someone who has been an author of chapter in a textbook, there's this piece that you become an author of a textbook because you're invited because of who you know. But beyond the fact that you write a chapter, there's no vetting of the content of it. And that's why in the world of evidence-based medicine, you tend to rely on peer-reviewed literature mm -hmm. that has you know, certain quality in the science. Beyond the textbooks, were you looking at peer-reviewed literature to help to develop and vet some of these questions? Or was it more falling back on the big names who write the, the chapters? Oh, most definitely. Uh, as far as peer review articles, like a good bit of what we do when we also validate these things, we don't, we aren't just looking at the textbooks. Like I mentioned, we have a library of textbooks, but we also have a library of peer review literature, but also literature that is just for the most part been as of right now, you know, scientifically agreed on for the time being. You know, obviously, science is a an ever changing animal. Uh, so, obviously, what we think we know now could very well change in the future. Um, but from our perspective, we're you know, you're we are utilizing the the resources and information that are considered um, valid in the field. That that actually sets up my next question, which is, I think, something that everybody's going to want to know, which is what do I study for this? Right. And, <laughs> and, and I know you can't say, well, study this and this and this, but I think just from high level, are these resources that you used all publicly available? They are. Yes. And they'll, they'll get a reference. There's a good reference list that will um, be, come with the handbook. Oh, mm -hmm. great. Okay. And so I assume that, that once the exam becomes available, that'll be available on the Abret website. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I want to get more into now content of the exam and you know, not really going to ask you things that <laughs> aren't already out there somewhere because it's not fair for me to say, okay, well, what's question one, right? Wink, um, wink. <laughs> but yeah, so there's a breakdown that I found on your website, just really high level of the different categories and the percentages of, I think it's the percentages of questions that fall into those categories. So I'm going to name each category. There's four and I'll name the percentage. And if you can just give me an idea of what types of information fall into that category. Yeah. So the first category is preparation and application of fundamental concepts. And this represents about 25%. What does that mean for the listener? Marty, do you want to take this one? Or you want me? Um, I, I can. So this okay. is 
all the preparation before the surgery. So this is like knowing specific neurological disorders, um, knowing the you know neurological exam, um, the elements of your pre-op neuro exam, um, history, um, special considerations per type of case, um, knowing procedure terminology um, and stages of the procedure, um, specific neuroanatomy, um, and any, you know, um, anesthetic protocols for, for complex spine. Um, like as well that. as uh, like any specialty, you know, any specialty equipment or electrodes you might need. Um, there's an expectation that the, the person taking the exam will have familiarity with all of that. Absolutely. And before we go on to the next category, you just mentioned something that is a, a long time interest to me. I don't know if you can answer this on behalf of Abra, but I'm just curious about your opinion of it. So I have always been of the opinion that a, uh, a neuromonitoring technologist, surgical neurophysiologist, I use the word neuromonitorist because it seems to be the most uh, across the board, across the board. Exactly. I've always been of the opinion that this person should be able to go and see a patient preoperatively and perform a basic neuro exam to get a sense of how the patient's function is on the day of surgery before they get baselines. There's a lot of people out there that are under the impression that they should not do that. It's not within the scope that that is the practice of medicine. And you just mentioned kind of a pre-op neuro exam and understanding the components of that. Super interesting to me. Are we moving in the direction of communicating to people that this is a part of the job? This is within the scope of a neuromonitorist. So I won't, again, I'm not going to speak on behalf of Abra. This is strictly um, sure. my personal opinion on the matter. I feel that while I don't necessarily think that someone needs to be prepared to go in, do the full neuro exam, I think at the very least there needs to be a fundamental understanding on the part of the neuromonitorist, as you like to say, um, a, a fundamental understanding of a neuro exam in the first place, whether they are the one performing it or whether they are the one reading it. So if you if if someone goes in and they you know maybe don't perform the neuro exam, they should be able to go say talk to the resident and understand the neuro exam that, say, the resident physician is giving. Sure. So if they see in a chart or the resident says, well, there are three out of five here, you would just automatically know what that means. Right. I would right. expect that, I would expect that, you know, most in the field should at the very least. That's my my thought on the matter. Marty, would you? Definitely. I mean, because that's going to affect your potential, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's move on to the intraoperative phase. This is 65% of the exam. What yeah. types of information do, the, do, do these questions cover? This is kind of the big chunk of the exam. Like I said, this is 65% of it. This is the meat and potatoes. So this is not just your knowledge of the surgery you're going into, the surgical events and the rest, but also how your monitoring might correlate to that. Um, understanding, obviously, your waveforms and how those waveforms might correlate to the surgery, the existing pathology. Um, this is also advanced troubleshooting. So this is for complicated modalities that require, you know, different types of filtering or perhaps different types of um, 
troubleshooting techniques in order to get clear, good quality data. Um, this also encompasses your alarm criteria, reporting on those changes, as well as any specific disorders or, um, and this kind of falls also a little bit into the preoperative phase, but any specific disorders or um positioning that the patient might be in that could increase risks. Um, this is your knowledge of all the different actual modalities that are involved in complex spine. Um, and of course, the stimulation parameters for it. So this is really the meat and potatoes. This is you are in the OR. And this is your knowledge about everything that you're doing in the OR that's happening in the OR and that is going on with your patient and the surgery. Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges that we see presently just in general in the world is an inability to troubleshoot. And the fact that stuff like that is included on this exam is great. It's very important stuff. You know, you can know how to get a basic waveform all day long, but if you don't know how to troubleshoot and get a clear waveform in the presence of extremely complicated pathologies and in the presence of complicated procedures, you're not going to be able to offer good quality monitoring for the patient um, that you're you're covering. So that ability to troubleshoot, I, I think, is is tantamount. So. Absolutely. So those two sections of the exam collectively are 90%. So yeah. fundamental concepts, preparation, and then the second one is the intraoperative phase. The next two mm -hmm. sections are each about 5%. The first one is the post-operative phase. What types of questions or what types of content would be included in that? That would include just post-operative concerns specific to the procedure being monitored, um, what you know potential complications could have occurred, what deficits, um, you know, including what risks could happen to the patient from that procedure. And I think you know too with, question, with the, oh, oh go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, and I think too, part of that post-operative phase too, you know, like Marty said, knowing the risks and possible deficits that they could come out with, I think that also ties into does this mean reoperation? Does this mean transient deficits? Does this mean permanent deficits? This is just that understanding of the implications of the monitoring. One question that I would love to see on the CNIM and any and every micro-credential that Abret ever creates is how often should you get and document a post-operative exam on a patient that you monitored? Answer A, always, no excuses. Answer B, sometimes. Answer C, never. Answer D, A. That's <laughs> it. Answer D is A again. Yeah. <laughs> But no, seriously, I mean, there's so, there's so many people that don't get post-operative exams purposefully. They don't document them. Yeah. And that yeah. contributes significantly to the fact that we're seeing so many changes in reimbursement now because we don't have the post-operative exams to correlate the intraoperative data and make an assessment about the utility and value of neuromonitoring in a systematic and empirical way. And people like every day walking out of the OR because they want to get home five minutes earlier rather than waiting to see the exam and documenting it is over 700,000 patients a year over the past 40 years has all added up to our situation now where we have all of these challenges and reimbursement. 
Okay, yeah. so I'm going to get off my high horse for a second. Let's talk about well, the last could section. Add, could I add a thought to that? Too? Absolutely, yeah. So one thing, one challenge I think with that too is there's kind of, I, I consider myself and, and Marty too, we very blessed to be on an in-house team where we have direct access to these patients and we have direct access to, you know, their charts and their post-op exams. So even if we don't immediately get to get it, we can always go and find out or we can go see the patient or go talk to the, you know, the surgeon or the resident. I think that is a little bit more of a challenge for some folks who are, say, not in an in-house or with, say, a contract company. Um, there is a bit of a challenge there where that even when they do stay and they're getting that post-op exam, they're maybe getting you know, the five minutes after they're awake. I think too, it's important for for people in the, the contract world to foster those relationships with the providers as well to get better information post-operatively. So even if they can just, you know, you know, go and talk to that surgeon again one day and said, hey, I saw patient XYZ, they woke up pretty good. Are they still doing great? I think that's, I mean, invaluable. That's a great point, Lindsay. And, you know, things are challenging in the outhouse. I mean, yeah. the outsource setting, but yeah. it's not, <laughs> not so challenging. They can't be overcome. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to ethics. So this is also 5% of the exam. What does this include? So this includes um, HIPAA, um, Abbott's code of ethics um, and regulatory requirements, that type of thing. Okay, there's a lot more to talk about in this exam, and I'm excited to get some more questions. Let's take a break here for a word from our sponsor. When we come back, we'll talk about the examination process and answer some common questions that people are asking. Be right back. Veridical RCM is a special kind of revenue cycle management company specializing in intraoperative monitoring, billing, and collections which is often misunderstood by the insurance industry, by hospital administration, and ultimately, patients. Veridical considers each contract a partnership, reviewing and making recommendations for improvement in all areas that impact revenue, including scheduling, credentialing, clinical documentation, infrastructure, charge master review, and facility contracting. The Veridical RCM team has a deep understanding of the changes affecting revenue with the implementation of the Federal No Surprises Act and each state's rules regarding surprise billing. They use this knowledge concurrently with each payer's medical policy guidelines to compliantly optimize revenue capture. Whether you choose to keep the revenue cycle in-house or outsource to a third-party billing company, you can definitely benefit from their guidance. Visit www.veridicalrcm.com for more information. That's V as in victory, E-R-I-D-I-C-A-L-R-C-M.com. And we're back. I'm talking to Marty Lau and Lindsay Akers from the ABREC committee that developed the new CNIM CS complex spine micro credential. So let's jump back into questions. When do you anticipate people will be able to take this test? When does it go live? I believe this test will go live this November, right, Lindsay? I believe that's what um, Stephanie was saying. That is the goal, um, November, but at the very latest, 2024, January. January, but as far as I'm aware, November is the plan. Yeah, that's that's what I believe Stephanie said at Abret. It was um, 
you know, not quite at the point where it's definitive that this will be in November. That's the goal. And as someone who's worked on exams before, I certainly recognize all the behind the scenes challenges of when the go live date is. So it's, you know, a little bit out of your hands probably, but um, so for anybody who's listening anyway, if you want to keep your ear to the ground, you can go to the Abret website and learn about, I'm sure there's going to be an announcement, I would assume, when probably all over social media and uh, through email campaigns, when this is is more definitively going live. Most certainly. And probably got ahead of ourselves a little bit here, but just kind of stepping back, what are the eligibility criteria for taking the exam? Um, so um, you need to document, well, you need to be a CNM, um, two years as a CNM, um, and you need to document 50 complex spine procedures where you are the primary technologist. And those will be, those types of procedures will be listed um, of what you can you know, choose from, or I believe modality specific as well. Um, yeah, that's so correct. The, it's either the type of procedure or the type of modality that, that drives that. 10% of those 50 have to be completed within the past 24 months. So, but um, within the past five years, you can go back for the 50. And do, does the experience of the person who is applying to take the exam, does it have to be spread across certain categories of complex spine or... Can somebody do 50 selective dorsal rhizotomies and take the exam? Believe you can take it if you do 50 dorsal rhizotomies. Yeah. However, um, however, the the test is pretty comprehensive over yeah. multiple modalities and multiple procedures. Right. I so think you still have to answer of- the exam questions. <laughs> yeah. Ge- the, the general word of advice would be you could do that. Um, it probably is not the best idea before going in to take the exam. Though. Sure. And and how is the exam administered? Is it similar to the CNM where you go to like a test? I mean, it's been so long since I've taken it. I don't even remember. So yeah. let me just ask the question more simply. How is the exam uh, administered? Should be administered the same way that the CNM is currently being administered. Okay. Same way. So most I people go to a testing center. Is that how yeah. it's you have the option to do it, I believe, online or um, through a testing center? The online is pretty intensive as far as um, having a proctor. Um, they do like a sweep of the room to making sure that um, there are no you know, possibilities for cheating, things like that. So the, the option to do it, I think, online is, is pretty rigorous still. Um, but yeah, I think um, testing center is going to be or testing site is going to be the Probably All right, work. so no walls of post-it notes behind your monitor to help <laughs> you remember what electrode is used for what. <laughs> no. Okay, so once somebody takes the exam, its certification is good for a period of time. How long is that credential good for before somebody has to renew? And what are the requirements for renewal? The um, registry will be good for five years and... Um, they will need 15 CEUs, I believe, to recertify or they can retake the exam. As well as a uh, documented case log of complex spine. Okay, sounds good. 
word on the street is that there are plans for additional micro credentials and neural monitoring down the road. Is that correct? That is correct. I think right now the big one that's in talks is um, possibly a complex uh, or a complex crany micro credential craniotomies. Oh, that's exciting. That's my, yeah. that's my bread and butter. That's my, uh, <laughs> my, my favorite topic. So I, I assume that includes things like sensory motor mapping and supertentorial surgery, uh, um, cranial nerve monitoring in brainstem cases, um, brainstem mapping, I'm... like fourth ventricle mapping. Yep. Okay. So, and, um, okay. So then you'll have complex spine, complex brain, Anything else in the works for down the line? Any rumors or anything? Yeah, we have we have kind of um, you know volleyed the idea of having a um, a specialization credential for um, pediatric uh, procedures, but that one's not really for sure yet. We've just kind of been spitballing it. So oh, you yeah. just mentioned pediatrics, and that kind of brings to mind the idea that certainly in some of the procedures that we talked about before as being complex spine, like selective dorsal rhizotomies, tethered cords, even scoliosis corrections, mm -hmm. those would often involve a pediatric patient. So is it fair to say that knowledge of pediatric neuromonitoring would be a requirement for taking this particular micro-credential, the CNMCS? Though it it isn't necessarily going to be a requirement. I do feel that uh, someone taking the exam, having that knowledge would be extremely advantageous, um, just given that a lot of these complicated procedures are often on children. Um, so having an understanding of pediatric, you know, neurophysiology is extremely important. This exam is not meant to um, encompass kind of the full range of complexities that pediatric patients present, but having a good base knowledge of pediatrics and their, uh, the types of procedures that you might do uh, for them for complex spine is, is pretty crucial, I feel. Okay, so uh, we're going to move on to a, a little bit different of a, uh, of a line of questioning now, so to speak. So I want to give you the opportunity to respond to, I don't know, I don't know if I want to say to critics or to people who have just more in-depth or complex questions. Mm -hmm. So that people have a better understanding of either the the goals behind this or Abbott's motives or how this fits into the bigger world of neuromonitoring credentialing. And I also understand that not being members of the Abret board, you may not be able necessarily to represent Abret. And that's okay if you're not able to answer a question or if you want to make it clear that this is your thought or your opinion as opposed to representing Abret, that's fine too. So the first question is this. Critics say that the new credential primarily serves Abret's economic interest because it allows Abret to capture additional revenue at the expense of current CNIMs who have to pay additional money for additional certification and it adds additional recurring revenue stream for Abret through recertification or the renewal process. So how would you respond to people's concerns that this new credential is only serving the financial interests of Abret? Well, I can't speak to it, you know, to Abret, but 
personally, I feel like this credential, you know, would shows you're a leader in the field. I mean, it shows you can do handle advanced procedures. And, and so I think it benefits anyone that, you know, is, is doing these procedures routinely and, and wants to be, you know, recognized as, as um, someone that is, you know, performing advanced spine yeah. monitoring. I think, I think one could potentially, you know, and again, this is, this is strictly my opinion on the matter, but I think one could apply the, the the idea of, oh, this is a money grab to pretty much any credential, right? I mean, like you could dwindle it down to the CNAM and be like, well, why do you really even need a CNAM? That's just an extra fee. Uh, you can put somebody in the OR. But I mean, this show, this is a way to really demonstrate knowledge and to say, this isn't something people have to take, you know, if they, if they don't want, to, uh, you know, to take this exam, they're more then welcome not to. And there, I don't believe there's ever necessarily going to be a requirement that, um, you know, maybe different companies might require at some point. But as of right now, this isn't something that's going to be required. I think this is just something for people who want to say, hey, I'm really knowledgeable in these types of procedures. I mm -hmm. do them very well. I would love to be able to prove without a shadow of a doubt that, you know, I am capable of this. It's the same concept of, uh, like say CLTM credential for, you know, EEG versus just a regular, you know, EEG registration. It's just showing you have a, an advanced set of knowledge that is documented and confirmed and verified. This is going to look good on your resume. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I wasn't planning on asking this question and, and this is more your independent uh, personal opinions, but I'm just curious. You mentioned, requirements um it's not going to be required why do you think that nobody thus far has taken a stand to say if you're going to do neuromonitoring as a neuromonitorist you must have a CNIM or get a CNIM within a prescribed period of time because it's always been and it still is well it's more wishy-washy like you should have a CNIM but it's okay if you don't um, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Um, uh, even though right now, you know, like you said, it's not completely like required across the board. I do think the field in general is moving towards the CNM being a requirement. Hospitals mm -hmm. seem to like to see people who are CNM. I have personally worked at hospitals that if you did not have a CNM, you were not allowed through those doors. Um, I think having it's the same reason that you wouldn't have you wouldn't bring in a nurse uh, on the floor, you know, of the ICU who didn't have her RN. Um, you know, th it's just that level of competency that I think needs to be demonstrated. So while it's not necessarily required now, I do personally think that the field is moving in that direction as it should though. I agree. I, I, more hospitals are requiring it for monetary as well as companies. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, many, I've seen many that same advancement now. over the past several years too. So yeah. it seems to be, it's interesting that it's being more driven by facilities than it is by societies who represent the profession. Speaking of, of facilities. So this, the second question that I want to ask you is, and I'm just going to give you some background here first. So most experts estimate that, approximately three quarters of all neuromonitoring in the United States is performed by outsourced providers. So these are companies that are contracting with facilities, right? 
And from a hiring standpoint, the micro-credential would, at least in theory, give better clarity to the quality of someone who's a prospective hire, a prospective experienced hire. But it's likely to create some confusion from the facility credentialing standpoint. So mostly because facilities may not understand what the CNMCS means, how it differs from the CNM, and why there's value in having outsourced technical staff with the CNIM complex spine micro-credential. So I guess the question is, for all the neuromonitoring companies out there who will carry the financial burden of certifying their staff to get this new micro-credential, what is the point, or what would you say to them is the point of paying for this credential if the hospitals may not see a meaningful distinction between the CNM and the CNMCS? My thought on that is it's not necessarily, at least for the initial, the initial move into this credential, it's not necessarily so much the um, hospitals, but I think this is really beneficial to approach surgeons with. I think if a company comes into a surgeon who does extremely complicated spinal cord tumors and says, hey, I have a whole subset of people on my team who not only can do these procedures, but have been certified that they are experts in these procedures. If I were a surgeon, to me, that would instill a lot of confidence. So it may not be something that the hospital itself cares about, but I do think this is something a surgeon will care about. Um, And I think a surgeon could make a hospital care about that. What, What do you think, Marty? Oh, I agree completely. Yeah, it it probably also serves as a differentiator. If you can go into a facility, if you can educate the facility as to what this is, and you can talk to them about the number of people on your staff who have this, and sort of, for lack of a better phrase, sell them on the idea that there's a higher level of care that can be provided, it differentiates your organization from another. And we very much live in a world today in the business of neuromonitoring where the only differentiator for the hospital is price who can do it at the cheapest so this potentially provides a a new avenue for differentiation at at least in the early stages does abred anticipate in any way leading a hospital facing or insurance facing education campaign to help people outside of our profession better understand the certification levels? We can speculate, um, but again, we we can't answer really for, for ABRET, but um, I feel that could very well be advantageous and, and definitely worth discussing with ABRET um, if it is not already a plan. Yeah, I'd be curious to know that. And even, even going into the past when the CNIM came out, was there some sort of an educational effort that was done for facilities to kind of reach out to, you know, you can go to like the American hospital association website and you can get all the different facilities and contact their uh, credentialing departments. You can educate them. And I am you know, kind of curious to know, and maybe at some point I'll have somebody from uh, the ABRA board on who has more, kind of a historical understanding of how the organization functioned years ago mm-hmm. and get just get an understanding of 
what efforts have been done in the past and whether or not they may be renewed for this micro-credential and for others that may follow. So I want to move a little bit now into the guidelines for qualifications of neurodiagnostic personnel that was published earlier this year. As you uh, probably know, this was a collaborative effort between the AANEM, ACNS, ASSET, ASNM. And some people have observed in reading this document, which is it's exhaustive and it's exhausting to read, but some people have observed what appears to be this sudden explosion in the interest with regard to describing neuromonitoring or neurodiagnostic credentials. And this is really the first formal effort to do so on a large scale. So in CLTM, you now have the neuroanalyst credential. In neuromonitoring, there's the complex spine micro-credential that's coming out. And you mentioned that there may be one in complex brain surgeries and in pediatrics. And there may be more that come in evoked potentials or EEG. The space appears to be getting kind of crowded. I'm just curious, why do you think there's a sudden interest, either from ABRET or professional societies or even individuals out there in the field of creating and describing new credentials? I think this kind of goes into that idea of demonstrating your advanced knowledge. You know, medicine is always growing. It's always changing and it's always becoming much more specific for care. And I think that specificity of knowledge is extremely valuable to quality care. And I think ABRET, you know, like a lot of, you know, medical credentialing societies um, is seeing that and seeing that, hey, we provide better care when we know that the people providing care know what they're doing. And I, I think that's kind of what the explosion is. It says, okay, not only can you do EEG, but you can do long-term monitoring. Not only can you do basic spine, CNM, you can do very complex spine and you were extremely knowledgeable about it. Um, so I, I really do think it's just advancement of knowledge and advancement of care from that knowledge. And given the competing descriptions out there right now, with perhaps a dozen different job descriptions that exist for neuromonitoring. Some of them are offered by the guideline and there's various different terminologies that are common in the profession. You know, I said neuromonitorist, neuromonitoring technologist, surgical neurophysiologist, senior surgical neurophysiologist. Then you get into like a, um, an educator, a lab manager. It seems like, the effort to create distinction has the potential to create less clarity and more confusion over all the different terms of job titles, certification, scope of practice. Is there a specific organization that you feel, and I'm asking you as you know, independent individuals, not necessarily like representing Abret, but I'm gonna I'm gonna step back here. So you've got Abret, ABNM. ABCN, ABPN, then you've got American Academy of Neurology, American Clinical Neurophysiology Society, you've got ASSET, you've got ASNM, you've got ABNM. There's a lot of players out there with a lot of different voices. Some are loud, some are soft. I mean, I know this is something ASSET has 
pursued for a long time to, you know, have more specific job descriptions for neurodiagnostic roles. So I think too, like without necessarily pointing out, say someone who's leading the field, but I, I think that an entity like Abret, who is actively working on credentialing, who is, I think that is that is the step in the right direction towards standardization. When you start getting standards of this is your credential, this is kind of the scope of your practice. You have now this extra credential, this is the scope of your practice. I think as you start to, even as you start to create different credentials, you are still pushing towards standardization of quality, I think. that's That would be my thought. So my next question is, this is a question that somebody asked Stephanie Krauss, and I mentioned earlier that I was in Orlando at the ACID annual meeting, and she was giving a talk about this new micro-credential. Somebody in the audience asked a similar question. I can't quote it directly, but I thought it was a very good question, and I really liked the way that she answered it. So I'm going to ask you the similar question. So a lot of people are wondering what the medical legal implications will be with the new micro-credential and neuromonitoring. So the CNIM has been the standard for a long time. Neuromonitoring is a highly litigious space. Malpractice cases are brought to judgment against technologists four times more frequently than neurologists. And I think it's fair to say that whether or not someone has this CNIM CS micro-credential will at some point come into play in a lawsuit involving a complex spine case. Do you have any comments or thoughts on the potential medical legal implications of the new micro-credential and how you or Abret thinks of this micro-credential in the context of the CNIM, which is the long-time standard? Uh, are you asking more what do we think the credential is going to say is going to imply for say medical legal outcomes for techs? Is, is that kind of more what you're asking? Sorry, just to clarify. Actually, it, it's more like what does not having the credential mean in a complex spine case? I see. I see. Um, you know, as it stands right now, obviously there, there is no credential that exists right now for, for complex spine. But I, I feel that if you get to, if we can get this to a point where it is something that perhaps a hospital expects or a surgeon expects from their technologist, I do feel there are possibly, you know, medical legal implications for perhaps a, a basic CNM with a year of experience you know, performing cases that are extremely advanced that maybe they don't have a huge amount of expertise in. Um, and if something goes wrong, I feel like it's going to look very different from a medical legal perspective. If you have someone who say is, you know, certified in complex spine and provided the best care they could versus maybe someone who's not as experienced um, and perhaps didn't provide as good of care. Um, what are your thoughts, Marty? I mean, it's a good question. I think, um, Depends on the hospital's requirements yeah. for their techs. And you can speculate a lot, I think, with that question. Um, but right now, I think stand stands to be seen. Let me just be clear. I'm not putting words in Stephanie's mouth um, <laughs> at, at all. But my recollection was that her answer was, was, was very similar to yours, but also along the lines of, well, the CNIM is the standard. And the idea is that 
if someone has the scene MCS, they've gone kind of above and beyond, but they still have the standard, which is right. the scene M because that's a requirement to take the scene MCS. Yes. So, yes. Um, okay. Well, speaking of the scene, I want to go back to that for a second and just share with the two of you, one of my personal longtime quibbles and anybody yeah. who knows me well, probably we had this conversation at some point because uh, I always like to pick people's brains about things. So I feel like there's a lot of information that's covered on the exam that doesn't directly apply to intraoperative neuromonitoring. And I'll give you some examples. So recording montages for obligate peaks and filter settings, both of those things as described by the ACNS and as, to my recollection, tested for on the CNM exam, they make more sense for the clinical diagnostic setting than they do for how they're actually deployed in the operating room. And there's also what I would consider to be a heavier than necessary focus on some electrical concepts like Nyquist, um, ultra slopes, <laughs> decibel conversions, ringing artifact. Yeah. That in 2023, with the technology that we have and the people that we have performing the role of the neuron monitorist seem a bit excessive. So one could argue that the exam, the CNM exam, would better equip neuromonitorists to monitor cases if it included more of what you described in the CNMCS, right? So these are like surgical stages and risk, optimal data display, but also just taking it a step further, optimal communication, standards for documentation. And I'm sure you've heard these types of critiques before. I mean, it's sort of, you know, what people whisper about in, in yeah. the hallways of society meetings. So I have two questions to ask. The first is, has Abret changed to your knowledge or considered changing the CNM exam to make it more applicable to day-to-day -day neuromonitoring? And I know you didn't even work on these questions. Some are, you know, for the CNM, you were more involved in this. The, you know, this is a pre-prepared question, but I'm just curious if you have any knowledge of that. Marty and I both were item writers for the CNM as well, so we can speak a little bit on that. Marty, I think you were going to say something. Oh, I was just going to say, I think, you know, as technology evolves, I mean, the CNM questions are constantly being reviewed and new questions filtered in from new item writers, you know, every you know, item writer seen him. Yeah, item writers for CNM serve for a period of two years, and, and so new items are always you know, filtering into the exam. So I think, you know, as technology evolves and, and new modalities you know, appear, it, it's going to reflect, be reflected on the exam. I also, I don't know that I totally agree that all of the intricate little filter settings and artifacts, I don't know that I agree that those aren't important for day-to-day -day monitoring because yes, I mean, the technology is great and all, but you still have a lot of people who are performing neuromonitoring on like an ancient Exoltech 16 channel, you know, and even on like the newest, shiniest, you know, uh, software that you can find, you still need to understand like, my goodness, you know, I can't set a rep rate that's going to line up with 60 Hertz 
artifact. Right. I need to know I can't put a notch filter on a SSCP. You know, this I think is extremely important because otherwise you're kind of sending these these technologists into the OR without a real understanding of the equipment they're using, the uh, the reason their data looks the way it looks. So I personally feel that those aspects are extremely important still. But that's that's my opinion. Yeah, I, I, and, agree and I totally agree. I just, you know, I want to clarify that, um, you know, I'm not saying that filter settings aren't important, they're critical. And I would say probably most of the mistakes that I see people making in the OR are because they have incorrect filters, like right. their EEG filters are set up as if they're EMG. And yeah. so the EEG looks like EMG, and they don't know yeah. why, um, those types of things. But it's more like when it comes to filters, the things that I've seen is like the filter settings that make sense for recording SSCPs in the clinic or for recording oh. EMG in the clinical diagnostic setting are much wider than what makes sense intraoperatively. And right. people, um, they're tested on that and then they use that and they let in a lot of unnecessary noise that they could narrow those filters a bit and no way compromise the signal and have much better recordings. And I'll also say that some of the things that I mentioned are actually important and I've used them in my work, but I've also not used them really until I got to really advanced procedures or advanced methodologies. And then those things came into play. But if I'm going to create something that is really just the basic skills to get people up to speed. I almost feel like some of those things should come later and some of the more basic things that people are missing, like what should they be documenting or like how should data be displayed? Um, you know, maybe I'm a little bit outdated because, you know, I'm, I'm realizing that you're telling me that my practice tests and study materials from 15 years ago are probably no longer any good, which is, is fine by me, but uh, hopefully people aren't using those outdated materials. And it's really good to hear that you're updating these questions on a routine basis because I didn't know that. I just sent in a new set of questions set the about mid-July, actually. So every few months, a whole huge set of questions gets resubmitted. And um, I know that they the, the actual CNM committee still reviews all the questions that come in, much like we do for the for the micro credential. Yeah. So and I, and I think as far as documentation goes, uh, unfortunately, I don't know that that's something that's hugely able to be tested on at the moment, just given the lack of kind of industry standards for that. I think once maybe industry standards have been better developed as far as what do you have to document, what do you not have to document, you know, how do you report changes, things like that. Once that's more standardized in the field, I feel like that's something that absolutely can and should be tested on. And I think it needs to be standardized. Yeah, I think we we need to develop those standards too, and and I would agree. You can't test on something that you know hasn't, especially that that hasn't been standardized. But it's certainly yes. a direction we should move. All right, I'm going to stop pestering you with questions uh, fairly soon. Just one more related to, and then I have a, a couple more, but one more related to the CNIM CS. So in developing that exam, I just mentioned some of the kind of historical complaints or feedback that people have about the CNIM. Was any of that kind of part of the discussions, this historical feedback in terms of developing the questions for this particular micro-credential? We talked a bit about 
not necessarily like some of those complaints, but we did we did talk a good bit about you know questions that especially like entities like PTC, you know they they have good standards for the types of questions that are advantageous for exams like this. You know, we're not, we're not testing people's ability to take a standardized test. We're, we're testing their knowledge. So um, all of the questions, you know, we are, are very, very deeply analyzed as far as their structure. Um, but as far as those specific complaints, I, I don't, with me involved, at least I don't recall any specific discussions on those, but um, Marty may have another thought though. No, I agree. I don't remember okay so um if if people have additional questions about this new micro credential or any other credential or registration that is offered by abret how should they reach out to abret to get their questions answered they can um reach out through the website um, i think that's probably the best way all this information also is going to be public but abret should have contact forms and everything on the website that people can can go through either shooting in their questions or shooting an email in either way so and be sure if, if they take the CN, cnim um, cs exam be sure to read the handbook yes definitely read the handbook <laughs> and you know, the content outline that's been my observation too is that people take these exams and they don't read the handbook and they set yeah. themselves up for failure so that is really good advice. No matter what exam you take, read the handbook oh, yes. cover to cover before you even think about taking the exam uh, or sitting for the exam because uh, there's a lot of important information in there. So I want to end by asking you what I call three signature questions that I ask all guests because I'm just interested to see how different people answer these questions. So first one, and I'll go to uh, Marty first and then Lindsay. This is fun because I get two people to <laughs> ask these questions too. So Marty, if you could give some advice to people in neuromonitoring in like five to seven words and think that it fits on a PowerPoint slide, what would it be? I would probably say, be confident of our place in the operating room. Oh, good one. And what about you, Lindsay? I would say know your worth. And I think that applies to in the operating room. I think that applies to your worth to if you work for a company, if you work for a hospital, know, know what value you are providing your surgical team and your, your patients that you're taking care of. I know love your that. worth. Know your worth. I like that. Do you have, so here's my second question. Do you have any insights or thoughts regarding how we can inspire people to be more involved in the neuromonitoring community or more invested in their career? So both of you are volunteering on this ABRET committee because something inspires you to go above and beyond your day-to-day -day in your employed job. What do you think we can do to inspire more people to be involved at a higher level in this profession? I think that's just it, to, to get involved um, in research and trying, you know, trialing new modalities. And, and uh, I mean, there's so much room for just growth of our field. I mean, so many new things we can learn to monitor and so many different ways we can protect our patients that we haven't even discovered yet. So just be involved, um, go to the conferences, read the literature. That would be my I advice. I 100% agree. I, um, I think the, the 
best thing to do is to promote the education. Um, I think a, a lot of um, people when they first get in the field, you know, a lot of people are they're starting at companies and, you know, they they may just be getting sent to the OR and, you know, coming back out at the end of the day, you know, they go, they do their, their basic case and then they go home. But if you can really, I think within a company, within a hospital, promote education, promote standardization, promote learning opportunities. I think the learning opportunity is what inspires people. I, I first got, I mean, I, I was in the field a couple of years before I got to attend my first big conference and I came away just with stars in my eyes after I left that conference. Just, oh my gosh, there's so much I never knew about. So I think promoting education is what's going to really get people pumped. Yeah, great answer. And just curious, what conference was that? Uh, I went to the, I got lucky. I went to the ECCN, the European Conference in Budapest, as my first big girl conference. Oh, wow. That is. <laughs> I know, it was one. nice. Oh, nice. Okay. So this is my opportunity to get a little vulnerable. My last question for you is, I know that I'm supposed to be interviewing you, but I want to give you the opportunity to ask me any question you want. So what, if anything, would you like to ask me? So what, what um, made you start to do these podcasts? Ooh, that is a good one. That is a really good one. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so I really enjoy a couple of different things that I don't always get to do in my day-to-day -day work. Uh, one of them is writing and another one is just kind of connecting with people and keeping my ear to the ground in ways that I wouldn't otherwise. So in, you know, my little world of, uh, of, of employed work or my little world of working in ASM, we, meaning the three of us, have probably crossed paths being at the same conferences like the asset meeting in Orlando, but we've never met. And this is an opportunity for me to not just meet new people and talk to them, but also introduce them to a much larger world of people in neuromonitoring. And really, I just wanted to kind of bring people together to talk about interesting topics. So podcast it is, and that's why I started it. Well, that's great. I, I hope this helps many people that are thinking about the CNMCS. Exactly. Like we get to get, we use the opportunity to get the word out about this new micro-credential and yeah. ask some questions that lots of people may have. Lindsay, what about you? What do you want to ask me? Uh, I think my, my question would be, what do you, if you could pick like one thing in the field, what would you want for it? Like for the future of neuromonitoring as a field, if you could have, you have your cake, eat it too, what, what would you like to see in the, in the field? Sorry, that's a hard one. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, uh, 10 things, 10 things come to mind immediately. Um, you know, I think I'm going to go back to, what I said a few minutes ago about the need for more standards. I think historically there's been kind of, there's been position statements or there's been guidelines, whether formal or informal. And in those position statements and guidelines, there's always, they kind of tend to be wishy-washy, you know, and not to pick on, you know, any organization in particular, but you know, we're here in 2023 and the CNIM is still like, well, you know, you should have it, but it's okay if you don't and you can go your whole career without it. That's to me, 
I would like to see us button up some standards for things like that certification, some basic standards for um, what should be documented um, and how frequently and how data should be displayed and which montages are, are the best montages to start with and just kind of go from there. But the fact that we've been in this field for so long and we're still lacking standards or any formal guidance on these things, I think is kind of a shame. And so I would like to see us collaborate, uh, the various societies come together and collaborate to develop some of these standards. So, I mean, I could have named 10 things, but that's the one that immediately comes to mind. Yeah, I think uh, that's coming in the future. I think so, too. Yeah, I, sh I should hope so. And I've already started having conversations with people about that. So I think we're moving in the right direction. Well, Marty and Lindsay, I know. Uh, so we're recording this on a Friday night and <laughs> you're both on the East Coast and yep. um, my house, your house. We're all getting a little bit uh, ready for dinner or bed. So yep. Marty and Lindsay, Thank you so much for being on the show, for representing Abret, for representing yourselves, sharing information about the upcoming CNMCS micro-credential. Uh, it's a micro-credential and complex spine to the listeners. If you have any additional questions about the CNMCS micro-credential, you can learn more by visiting the Abret website at www.abret.org. Thank you so much to both of you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much to all my listeners from around the world. I appreciate each and every one of you. Please continue sending your comments, critiques, and thought-provoking questions to stimulatingstuffpodcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you. I'm Rich Vogel, and that was Stimulating Stuff. The information and opinions provided in this podcast are those of the individual speakers and do not represent the opinions of their employers, affiliates, or other third-party individuals or organizations. Sponsorship and other advertising messages do not constitute support of or preference for specific products or services. This podcast is not designed to and does not provide medical advice, diagnosis, opinion, treatment, or services. This podcast is host and all participants, including guests and sponsors, collectively participants, provide general information for entertainment purposes only. The information provided in this podcast is not a substitute for medical or professional opinion, and you should not use the information for that purpose. Participants shall not be held liable or responsible for any advice, course of treatment, diagnosis, or any other information, services, or product you obtain or render. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>